Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 through 17 this morning. Let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy and inspired and authoritative word. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would, by your Spirit, strengthen us now in the preaching and hearing of your word, that our faith may be made strong in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, we're starting a new series this, uh, this morning, and we, we have this pattern that we go through here at Christ Church where we spend a couple of months in the Old Testament and then a couple of months in the New Testament, uh, and then we have some kind of uh, topical or, or other type of, of series that we look at uh, and so right now we're working our way through Mark in the New Testament where when we cycle back to the Old Testament, we're going to be looking at Hosea, so that will be fun. Uh, and for the next two months, we're going to be looking at covenants in the Bible. So it's still going to be very, very much text-based and all of that, uh, but we're going to be looking at these different covenants that we find in the Bible. And the reason for this is simple. Covenant really frames the entire story of the Bible. If you've been here any time at all, you've heard me say that the Bible is the story of God establishing His kingdom through His Christ according to His covenant promises. It's kind of a mantra that that I have and that that we say around here talking about this kingdom Christ covenant paradigm or, or way of looking at and understanding the story of the Bible to remind us that it is all one story from beginning to end. But what we've never done outside of some new members classes and and elder training and and, and maybe a long time ago when we went through the book of Genesis when we were just getting started as a church, we've never just stopped and looked at these covenants and and explored how they all work together. And so that's what we're going to spend some time doing to help us make sense maybe a little bit more uh, of what I mean when I say that the Bible is the story of God establishing his kingdom through his Christ, according to his covenant promises. Because really, this is what the Bible is about, and this is how the Bible works. So as we come to Scripture, uh, theologians kind of look at it and and say there there are a number of different covenants, and some of them are very obvious, like the Abrahamic covenant, or the Noahic covenant, or the Davidic covenant, or the New Covenant, where God says, I'm going to make this covenant. Or the Mosaic Covenant, where the people there at the foot of of, of the mountain enter into this covenant agreement with God, where he says, do this. And they're like, oh, totally we're going to do that. It's going to work out great. But not all the covenants are are quite that obvious. And, and, And so right at the beginning of the story... We have the first covenant. It's it's one of these that just on the face of it, in the passage that I just read, isn't obviously a covenant. It's it's never says anything about covenant in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. It it doesn't say God made a covenant with Adam and these were the stipulations and this is how it was all going to work. It doesn't say that. 
So the question then that, that we have to start with is, why do we see this as a covenant? Why, why would we, we, we bother kind of looking at this and, and what's going on here and seeing it as a covenant? We're going to get there. But, but first I want us to understand the setting in which God announces this covenant. It, this Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4, is the second telling of the creation story. You've got Genesis 1 through 2, 7, where, where everything is arranged in six days, and, and let there be light, and let there be, and, and there was, and God saw it, it was good, and you've got that, that pattern throughout. And on day six, man is created, and woman is created. And then in Genesis 2, chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 4, the story is retold again. But this time, rather than being arranged around these six days, it's, it's arranged around specifically the creation of man and what God does with him. So, so we see that, that God forms man in verse 7, and then he, places man, or he plants a garden in verses 8 through 14. The Garden of Eden and, and all the plants are there, and it's this beautiful place. And then God places man in the garden. And he says in, in verse 15, the, the first verse of our passage, he puts him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now, I want you to all be uh, Hebrew nerds with me for just a minute, okay? Because there, there's an important point for us to see what's going on in this passage. Almost all modern English translations say to work it and keep it, meaning the Garden of Eden. That, that's what the it refers to. But there's this weird problem in the Hebrew where, where that doesn't quite line up. The, the gender of the pronouns and the noun don't line up. And so the question becomes, what are they to work and keep? What's going on here? And, and, and there is a sense in which, yes, they are to, to manage the garden. That was their job. But what's interesting, these two words, work and keep, abad and shamar in Hebrew, get used together in some very particular ways throughout the rest of the Bible. Two of the key ways that they get used is one of priestly work. In Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, this is how the, the work of the, the Aaronic priesthood is, is described. This is what they were to do. They were to, to work and keep the temple. They were to serve in the temple and keep the word of God and lead Israel in keeping the word of God. We, we see this also in terms, these two words being used at a number of places in terms of, of worshiping Yahweh alone. So several times in Deuteronomy, in 11.16, in 13.3, in Joshua 22.5, but then specifically in Jeremiah 16, 11, where we read this, as, as Jeremiah, as the mouthpiece of Yahweh, is, is announcing their failure, he says this, they have served them, that, that's other gods, so I'll put that in there, they have served, that's the Abad word, they have served other gods and bowed to them. And then here's the parallel line. They have forsaken me. And my law, they have not kept. They have, they have abided, they have served other gods, and my word, they have not shamar, they have not kept. That was the problem with Israel. Rather than, than serving and keeping, rather than, than working and keeping as they were supposed to, they had turned from God and were serving other gods and not keeping His word. 
Now, how does this all fit there in the garden? What we begin to see when we develop this this broader biblical theology is that what man was created to do, why we were put in the garden, the very reason for our existence is to obey and worship and serve Yahweh. That's why the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins where it does. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's why we were created. That's why Adam was created. That's why he was put in the garden. To worship God. To worship Yahweh in all that he did. That's why Eve was given to him as a helpmate. To aid him. To help him in this work of worshiping God in all of life. That was the goal. It wasn't just that they were to be gardeners together. Yes, they were. But they were to be worshiping God in all that they did. That was the reason for their existence. That was the point of creation. So then we read, and and, and after that, that the Lord God gives them a command. He frames for them, what that abode and shamar, what that working and keeping, what that worship, what it was going to look like for them to bow down to Yahweh rather than anything else in creation. And he gives this stipulation. I want to read the words again, beginning in verse 16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this passage is what we we refer to as the Adamic covenant or the the covenant with Adam. Sometimes it's also called the the covenant of life because life depended on on their obedience. Sometimes it's called covenant of works. It it goes by a number of different names. I think it's most helpful to talk about as the covenant with Adam or the Adamic covenant because he's the one who's, who's party to this covenant. But, but again, we, as I pointed out earlier, it doesn't call it a covenant. So, so why, why would we bother developing this whole covenant idea if it's not explicitly stated in Scripture? Well, well first of all, and I'm not going to go into all of the, the nerdy details on this. If you want them, we can have this conversation. You'll just have to trust me otherwise. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, there were particular like structures to how covenants were written. And, and you'll just have to trust me on this. If you want to check my work, come talk to me. This matches those structures. The way this passage is put together parallels the structures of how a covenant would be put together in the ancient Near East with the Hittites and the Assyrians and all of these other old, cool people. But we don't have to just rely on this extra-biblical idea. In, he, in, in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7... It says, when again, when, when the prophet is, is challenging Israel for their sin, it says that they, they broke the covenant at Adam, or some translations, they broke the covenant like Adam. And so the question is, should it be at Adam? Is it a place where they did something? Or is this them being compared to Adam and his breaking of the covenant? Well, I, I think it's the latter, and here's why. Adam is mentioned as a place in the Bible, one time in Joshua. And it's where the waters stood up when they were going to cross 
the Jordan River. When, when it's talking about where the water's like piled up so they could cross on dry land, this place called Adam is mentioned. But, but it wasn't a place by any stretch of the imagination in that scene, and it's not mentioned anywhere else, of, of covenant breaking. It was a place of God delivering them. It was a place of God keeping his promises. It was a, it was a place of, of God's steadfast love being displayed. But there's no indication in Scripture that they messed up there at all. But there is an indication in Scripture, as we're going to see in a few minutes, that Adam, their forefather, he did mess up in a rather significant way with far-reaching consequences. So I think it's best that that we read this as, as, like Adam, they broke the covenant. Because that was the problem, wasn't it? We know why God was frustrated with the Israelites, and it was because they had broken the Mosaic Covenant. They hadn't kept the Sabbath. They hadn't followed the law. They hadn't kept the rituals. They hadn't kept themselves pure. They hadn't separated themselves from all of the other false gods that were around them in the lands. They had broken the covenant, and so it makes complete sense that they would be compared to Adam, who had done the same thing. But we can go even further with this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we we looked at this this whole chapter uh, on Easter Sunday talking about the resurrection, but we didn't spend a lot of time particularly on 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22. And in those verses, this is what we read. For as by one man came death, by uh, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, we just read earlier Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, where Paul makes the same point, but he gives a lot more detail. Rather than two verses, there's, there's six or seven verses there where Paul says, look, this is how it went down. This is what happened. And notice what's going on. Adam is being presented as some kind of federal representative or covenantal representative for all mankind so that we can say we in 2020 sinned in him somehow. Now, the, 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 the concept that explains this and that puts this together for us and makes sense of, of what the Bible says is that what Adam was given with God in Genesis 2, 15 through 17 was a covenant where he was the federal head. He was the representative of all mankind. And so whatever he did counted for everyone. Whatever he would do in this covenant in Genesis chapter 2 would count for everyone. If he succeeds in in keeping this covenant and obeys, it's going to go well for everyone. If he fails in keeping this covenant and disobeys, as our confession says, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, in other words, being born in a completely normal way, in other words, not Jesus, but everybody else, sinned in him and fell with him in his first sin. 
We, we get some idea of, of this kind of covenantal relationship or this federal relationship just from how life works here in the United States. If, with, with the, the Congress's approval, the president, as the federal head of the United States, declares that we're at war with someone, we, as a nation, are at war. All of us. Now, we may not be in the military. We may not be marching off or flying off or, 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 or driving off to war. But all of us are at war because the one who is the federal head has declared this is now our state of existence. When we come to Adam and Eve, we see the same thing. His behavior, his keeping or failing to keep this covenant is going to declare our state of existence in this world. So how does the covenant work? Well, as you know, the story, I I assume that that they're in the Garden of Eden and God has given them every plant, every tree for food. Up to and including the tree of life that we find out later they could eat from that and live forever. But there was one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of that one tree, Of that one tree, they couldn't eat. And if they did, in the day that they eat of it, they would surely die. Can you imagine that? Kids, can you imagine if at home, if your parents said, you know what? Anything goes. There's only one rule. Just one. Do you think, kids, that you could keep that one rule? I got news for you. It would be the first thing you did. <laughs> would break that rule. You wouldn't keep even just one rule. And here's the thing. If, if the nation, if the Congress, if, if all the, the powers that be said, okay, citizens, All the laws are off the book. We're this utterly libertarian society. There's only one rule. We would all break it the next day, if not that afternoon. Because the law provokes us in that way. So when we see Adam and Eve just given one rule, we're like, oh, man, that seems easy, right? Not really. Not really. And the consequences of them breaking this one rule, though, are cataclysmic. They would die. Not not just they would die, they would surely die. The the, the literal Hebrew is dying, you will die. It's not going to go good if they break this one rule. Anything you need, up to and including life, but don't eat this tree. Don't eat this tree or you get death. It seems like such an easy choice. It seems like such an easy choice. But as we know, because we come here every week and I tell you about how to be saved and I tell you about one who died to pay for our sins, it must not have been that easy of a choice. 
as we know because we read the news and, and read about wars and, and read about disease and read about famine and read about crime and, and live in fear and deal with sickness. It must not have been that easy of a choice. As we know, because we all readily and just do at a time, sin. Like there's nothing left to do in this world but sin. We know, well, it must not have been that easy of a choice. Because Adam did, in fact, take from that one tree and eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We read this part of the story in Genesis 3 where the serpent comes and tempts Eve, his wife, and she sees that the fruit is good for food and a delight to the eyes, which, by the way, that wasn't new. We read that in 2.9, that the fruit was good for food and was a delight to the eyes. That wasn't the part that was problematic, admitting that much. It apparently was a, was a beautiful tree. I, I tend to think, I tend to think of the tree of life that, that or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that it was this kind of decrepit thorn bush that, that like had one wilted piece of fruit left on it in the midst of this absolutely beautiful green lush garden. But that's not how the Bible describes it. It says that it was beautiful. It was beautiful. She sees that. And, and with, with Satan's temptation and, and his provocation, she takes the fruit and eats. Now, that was a problem, to be sure. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was what happened next. And she gave some to her husband, who was with her, with her. She wasn't tempted on her own. He was with her, and he ate. Now, why is that the problem? Is it because we're some cranky, patriarchal, whatever? No, not really. That's not why that's a problem. The problem is because as we read the story, we see that this covenant was made with Adam before Eve had been created. He was the covenant head. He was the covenant representative. God makes this covenant with Adam, and then it says in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So there's this weird situation, and I say weird just because it's hard for us to understand exactly how this all worked, where Eve was kind of on the outside of the covenant. She was only in the covenant in the same way that you and I are. That's it. Adam takes of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and eats. And then the Bible tells us everything unfolded immediately. The eyes of both of them were opened and they became like God, knowing good and evil. See, we oftentimes think that when, when Satan, that when the serpent shows up and says, oh, he just doesn't want you to eat of this because you'll be like him knowing good and evil, that he was lying. He wasn't lying. That the problem wasn't that he was lying about that. It was that he was making that a desirable state to be in. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew good and evil. And they saw that they were naked. And they were ashamed. Shame entered the world with sin. 
Can you even begin to imagine that? Living in a world with no shame for anything. Where where the level of innocence, the level of purity is such that, that even being undressed doesn't leave you vulnerable and ashamed. That's where they were until they ate of this fruit. The story continues. As we know, God comes looking for them, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You've got all this beautiful anthropomorphic language that that highlights the the communion that they had with the true and living God. And, And they hide. They hide. Why? Because they have failed the covenant. They they have failed to obey. They they have not abided and shamarred. They've not done it. They've not worshipped him. They've done exactly what Israel would do. They've served other gods. They've bowed to them. They have forsaken Yahweh and his law they had not kept. And when the covenant is If you do this, you're going to die. And then you do that thing. You're going to hide. When the one that made the covenant shows up. And that's exactly what they do. He, of course, finds them. They they pass the buck. buck. Adam says, it wasn't me. It was this woman that you gave to me. That's the problem. He goes to Eve. It wasn't me. It was the talking snake. That's the problem. And so he goes to the serpent. And and we begin to see the effect of the breaking of this covenant. And it's nothing less than an undoing of the created order at every level. In Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, we read of this curse that you've heard before. Because you have done this, curse you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. Notice, he doesn't say, cursed are you apart from all livestock and all beasts of the field, as if only the serpent is cursed. Everything is. Everything is affected. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all the feasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, you shall, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is going to be strife in this world. There's going to be turmoil. There's going to be this ongoing, constant battle that rips or tries to rip creation itself apart. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. There's going to be pain in the process of giving life. That's going to be now a process that that even reminds us of the fall. There's going to be this tension between husband and wife. Her desire for him, but him ruling over her. This passage is dealt with in different ways, but but the exact same construction is used in just a couple chapters where where God says 
Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. That's not a harmonious relationship between us and sin. And we see the same construction here. If you've been married for 30 seconds, you've felt this. You know the tension. You know that the struggle of trying as two sinners to live in harmony with one another. This is why when we come to the the family table in Ephesians, Paul says again and again and again and again that it comes back to both of you being found in Jesus Christ. That's how it's going to work. That's the only way it's going to work. This is why. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Growing up, we had a great yard, other than the sweet gumballs, but the grass itself, you could run around in it. There were no stickers. You could be barefoot in the yard all over the place. It was fantastic. I hated going to friends' houses who didn't take as good a care of their yard. And you're playing on a slip and slide or you're jumping on the trampoline and you've got your shoes off and you step and your feet just get impaled. I've always had just really sensitive feet that react horribly to that situation. And so, and I realize this is ridiculous. I get it. I realize how shallow this is. But from the time I was a kid, I have said, when I grow up, my yard will not have stickers in it. It won't. I went to pick Thatcher up, who who lives like a, a Solomon Islander with no shoes ever. And his feet are made of dried old leather. And he can walk across anything and feel nothing. And we're walking home. He was across the street at a friend's house. We're walking home. He's barefoot. I'm like, did you bring shoes? I have to ask. I feel like it's the right thing to do. I always know the answer. And we're walking through our yard. And he's like, Dad, our yard has stickers in it. And I was crushed. (laughs) And I was reminded of the fall. Yes, in a silly way. But, but, But here's what I want us to understand about this. This is how far-reaching the effects of the fall go. Everything broken in this world, everything broken in you, every sin, every result of sin can be traced back to this. Everything that is broken and undone and out of sorts and uncreated in this world can be traced back to this. God was telling Adam, you're going to work and you're going to work hard and it's going to be vain. Work wasn't a result of the fall. Work that doesn't produce the intended results was a product of the fall. Even our work that doesn't produce the intended results is part of the fall. 
thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is a result of the fall. It wasn't a reality prior. But here it is. Here it is. This, this is why we can say when we look at the world and we see the brokenness, we see the wars, we see the struggle, when we look at ourselves and we see the trauma and we see our sin, that it all comes back to this. And that what is needed above all else It's whatever the Bible presents as the solution to this situation. Namely, Christ. Now, yes, we we can say that. We we can look at the world and say, well, what needs to happen is we need to preach the gospel. And that is 100% true. But we've got to be careful with how we apply that. Because the Bible reminds us That life on this side of glory will always be this. It'll always be this. We, We won't, and this isn't me being my normal pessimistic cranky self, but we will not preach the gospel so effectively, so loud, so broadly, that sin in this world, this side of glory, is done away with. This was driven home for me one time on the way to Presbytery meeting when I was in seminary. I was riding with my, my neighbor, Andy Halsey. If I remember right, he was maybe going to be ordained. And it was in Memphis at Independent Presbyterian Church, which is in like the, the, the money part of Memphis. And you're driving down this road. I mean, it's just like how, like southern living every yard, every house. I mean, it's just, it's just wild. It's beautiful. And he said cynically, I wish we could believe that all of this was just the result of preaching the gospel. Wouldn't that be awesome? That if we would just preach the gospel right, everything in this world, this side of glory would be fixed. It won't. That's why we're told in the New Testament there's a place for government There's a place for rules and regulations. There's a place for seeking justice in this life that extends beyond just preaching the gospel. Because we live in absolute brokenness and sin and a fallen world. Yes, we need to preach the gospel. Yes, ultimately, that's how this is brought to an end by the finished work of Jesus Christ and by His triumphant return, bringing the new heavens and new earth where all of these things are undone and everything is set right again. But we're not there yet, so we've got to be careful that we don't overapply that. Because the reality is, as we've read in Romans 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15, that where this leaves us, in Adam, is dead in our sin. 
Every one of us. No one escapes it. But in both of those passages, there's a second covenant head that's mentioned. And that's Jesus Christ. And just as in Adam all die, just as everyone that that comes from him by ordinary generation, everyone born of Adam is born dead in sin, stillborn but breathing. Everyone who is in Christ is made alive. Because the curse of Adam has been turned back by Jesus. Because the death that we deserve for being in Adam and for sinning like Adam, that death has been died by Jesus. Because all of the covenant curses from from this covenant of works and from the law have been absorbed and have been taken on and have been satisfied By Jesus. This is why I can look at you. You sons and daughters of Adam. Dead in him. But now alive in Christ. And say you will live again. Your sin has been forgiven. Because of what Christ the second Adam. The new covenant head. Because of what he has done For us, his people. Whereas our first father, Adam, brought death to us as our inheritance. Our new father, our new federal head, Jesus, has brought life to us as our inheritance. He satisfied this covenant of works. And so we are brought out of the curse. And while we live in this between times where we feel this tension that that Paul describes for us in Galatians 5, that, that our flesh is at war with the Spirit within us, constantly, it's not our flesh It's not our flesh that announces our status any longer. But it's Christ. In Adam all die. In Christ you live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for the undoing of the curse of Adam. And we ask that you would strengthen us to rest in Jesus Christ who is our sure and certain hope. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of Scripture and theology.